Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for March 10th, 2019. Today, Brother Omar brings us a message called Statement of Faith, Doctrine of Election. Now, Brother Omar investigates and unpacks the question, does God choose sinners to be saved and then provide for their salvation? Or does God provide the way of salvation that sinners must choose for themselves? So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's Word here on Followers of the Way. Today we start the doctrine of election. We are going to take some time to talk about the doctrine of election. Now typically there's going to be two ways in which this is handled. Number one is completely ignored. And number two, if you go to a Reformed church, this is basically all they teach. All they teach is election. And so when we're talking about salvation, the issue of election is going to come up. And because we don't want to ignore anything that the Bible teaches, and we want to be honest with the way that we handle the Word of God, so we're going to be talking about the doctrine of election. What does it mean? What does the Bible teach about it? And the Bible teaches that there is an elect group of people. So the doctrine of election is in the Bible. You would find several verses in the Bible that deal with this. First Peter chapter 1, for example. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So here, the Apostle Peter says to those Christians who were aliens in you know, the different areas that he was ministering, that they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So you have Christians are called chosen, depending on your Bible translation that we use the word elect. Either way, it's an interchangeable word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Just as he, it's talking about God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So we were chosen in Christ. Now he's addressing people who are believers before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Okay? So you have another verse in Scripture. Both Peter and the Apostle Paul tells us that we are chosen. Now, closely associated with the doctrine of election is the doctrine of predestination. So if you go to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, a famous text, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay? So this is sometimes known as the golden chain of redemption. Or some people call it the ordo salutis. Okay? So if you hear the term ordo salutis or golden chain, it's typically, well, every time is referring to this particular text. Okay? So we have it in scripture, and this is only one of many verses that I could have pulled up that talk about the idea of God's having a chosen people and that Christians are that chosen people of God. Okay? So this is a doctrine that is taught in Scripture. So we don't ignore it. We don't you know, go by it. We have to teach it. We have to deal with it. It's in the Bible, and it's good. Everything that in the Bible is good. Now, that being said, this is a debate because we all believe that the Bible teaches that there's a doctrine of election. Now, as it is 
always happens. Remember, we had the three circles. We had the inner circle, which is the essential doctrines of the faith that we all agree with, that we all stand, that define Christianity. And then you have the outer circle, which are secondary doctrines that we disagree. And the doctrine of election, the fact that the Bible teaches that there's an election, is indeed a fundamental doctrine, because the Bible teaches it, and we don't deny it. Now, the interpretation as to what election means falls within the second circle, okay? Now, this is a debate that has been going on for 1,600 years. So don't expect any answers from me, okay? There's not going to be any resolutions here, okay? Many men, many, many, many men have argued this back and forth forever, okay? And there is a lot of controversies associated with it, which is why, unfortunately, a lot of people skip over it, don't even talk about it. There are, unfortunately, many churches that if you grew up in, you probably never heard of this teaching. And if you grew up in a Reformed church, this is all they teach, okay? And so we want to be balanced, we want to be biblical, and we're going to look at it. So today, today, it's going to be a little different, okay? Today is going to be more of a view at history and defining the terms before we get into the verses, Okay, so it's not going to be like, I'm not going to be expounding from any verse or anything today because before we go ahead, I need to define terms because a lot of times what happens is people talk over each other and nobody gets the point. Everybody's speaking out of context. Okay, so I want to give you some context. I want to give you some history. And so with that, I'm going to give you a couple of disclaimers. You guys love my disclaimers. Okay, number one. This is a 1,600-year debate. I'm not going to solve it for you. You might not get all the answers given to you, okay? Because this greater man than me have dealt with this, go back and forth. Uh, that being said, it does not mean that necessarily this is a doctrine that is hard to understand, necessarily. It's just that there is a disagreement as to what is, it means. So you may fall on one side or the other. The other thing is, is that this is not going to be much of a sermon. It's going to be more of a historical lecture, okay? We're going to be looking at certain teachings so that you can get familiarized with some of the terminology. So when next sermon we get into the verses, you sort of get an idea where people are coming from, okay? Third disclaimer is you may be overwhelmed with the amount of information, okay? There's going to be a lot of information, and I'm going to go very, very fast. So if you feel overwhelmed, if you don't feel confused, if you don't understand something, that's perfectly fine. You don't have to understand everything the first time you hear it, and complicated things are complicated for a reason, all right? So one of my rules whenever I stand here to preach is I refuse to dumb anything down, okay? I don't do that. The thing that I hate the most is the phrase, put it in layman's term. You ever hear that? Just put it, just give it to me in layman's term. Okay, no, <laughs> right? Things are complicated for a reason. So when we simplify stuff, a lot of times we leave out the details that make the thing the thing. All right, so I refuse to do that. I'll explain as much as I can. If you don't understand it, that's perfectly fine. Listen to the sermon again. Think about it at home. Leave the church and go to another one. I don't know, but I will not. <laughs> 
<laughs> or stay with us, bear with us, or ask us. Fourth disclaimer, if you are, fourth disclaimer is if you are very, 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 very lost, okay, and very, very, very overwhelmed, you may ask me a question during the, the preaching, okay? You may raise your hand and be like, what are you talking about? Okay, fifth disclaimer is I may not have the answer, <laughs> okay? All right? All right? The reason being that I say that is because, number one, it's a complicated issue. I may not have the answer, and I have absolutely no problem with saying, I don't know. Okay, if I don't know something, I don't know it, you know, we'll go back to it, we'll figure it out. Okay, so if you feel yourself very overwhelmed, you're like, what are you talking about? What does that mean? Raise your hand, and you may or may not get an answer to your question. Okay, so you guys excited? I'm excited. All right. So here's the thing. When we talk about the doctrine of election, there's going to be a couple of other issues that have to be brought up, okay? And primarily, we're talking about the issue of free will. Typically, these things are put together. Election and free will, okay? Do human beings have the ability to choose, or does God have to choose certain people so they could be saved, all right? Now, let me give you some timeline, all right? So, Jesus, that's not Jesus, that's the beginning of my timeline, is born, okay, and around, we think, 30 AD, he begins his ministry. Now, the reason why that sounds weird is because we typically put the birth of Jesus at year zero, but throughout the years, we lose some years here and there, so they actually think that Jesus was probably born sometime around uh, 4 BC, which is interesting because Christ was born before Christ. Anyways, sometime around 30 A.D. or 27 or whatever, he begins his ministry. So let's just say 30 for the sake of understanding it. So he begins his ministry, and he calls out certain people that he chooses to be his apostles. Okay? Now, these men do ministry. Okay? The apostles do their, start their ministry. Jesus dies. He's resurrected. He ascends into heaven. He sends out the Holy Spirit. His apostles continue writing the scriptures, putting down the New Testament, and we think that the last apostle to have died was the apostle John sometime around 95 to about 100 A.D. Okay? That's what we think. I'm 100% sure, but that's pretty much what history tells us. Okay. This period is known as the apostolic age. Okay? So this is the age of the apostles, or the apostolic age, okay? So roughly 30 to about 100, which is the life of the apostles. The New Testament was written around this era, etc. Okay, the apostles all die, okay, and they go to heaven, but they left a group of people, right, that were saved under their ministry or whatever, and from about 100 A.D. to about 749 A.D., we get something called the church fathers. Okay, now these were men who minister, wrote, defended the Christian faith from about the death of the apostles to about 749 AD. Okay, this is known as the church fathers. Sometimes these guys are known as patristics. You hear one of these two terms, church fathers or patristics. Patristics comes from the Latin word pater, which means father. Same thing, okay? Now, 
from 100 AD to about 325 AD, something happened which we talked about already known as the Council of Nicaea. You guys remember when we talked about the doctrines of the scriptures and the doctrine of God, there was a guy running around called Arius who denied the Trinity. He taught that Jesus was a created being, etc. Well, the issue was settled at the Council of Nicaea, the first Council of Nicaea, which settles the question of the deity of Christ. Okay, so basically what they did is that they affirmed what these guys were already teaching, that Christ is the Son of God, but he is also the second person of the Trinity, he is deity, etc. So this period from 100 AD to about 325, some people extend it to like 350, these Leaders or Christians who arose are called the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Okay? Because anti meaning before the Council of Nicaea. Okay? So that's more or less early Christian history. Right? Now, a lot of stuff. I told you. The apostles died. They leave these men. So these typically here include people like Irenaeus, uh, Polycarp, Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, all these Christians sort of defended the Christian faith, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity against paganism. Once the Council of Nicaea happens, the persecution ends. Constantine becomes the emperor, right? That's, he's the one who called for the Council of Nicaea. And then from this period till beyond, the church is no longer persecuted and the Roman Empire becomes Christianized, okay? So, around this period, I told you all this to tell you this, Arose a man, this is about maybe, by the way, the dates are kind of iffy around this period, so this is kind of average. 360, he was born to about 430, where he died. Arose a man by the name of Augustine, which I have a picture of him. That is an actual photograph of the guy. He's, that was before uh, selfies. That is actually quite misleading, by the way, because Augustine was from North Africa. He was a Roman African, okay? So he probably didn't look like that. He probably looked a little bit darker skinned. Nevertheless, Augustine begins to address an issue that more or less people were not talking about before, and is the issue of how does grace works with our salvation? Now, I can tell you that this man, Augustine, is arguably the most influential theologian in history, period. If you're a Christian in the Western church, just about most of what you understand theologically comes straight out of his writings. Okay, he is the most prolific writer of the early church period. He is the most influential writer, not only in Christian theology, but also in Western philosophy. Okay, so Augustine, without a doubt, the most influential theologian of the Western Church, and he, like I said, not only influenced Christian theology, but also philosophy. Now, let me explain what I mean by the Western Church. This is more information for you guys. This is very entertaining. Okay. The early church period, all this period, we have one church. Nowadays, we have different churches, we have different traditions, we have different denominations, but in this early church period, there's only one church, the universal church of God, okay? Now, the word universal in Latin is the word Catholic, right? Catholic means universal, 
Okay, so everybody at this point is a Catholic. I don't care where you were. I don't care what you understood. If you were a Christian and you were baptized, you were Catholic. You were part of the universal church of God. All right? Here's the problem. The western part of the empire was Latin. The eastern part of the empire was Greek. There were cultural differences between the two, and they sort of tolerated each other till about 1100, all the way over here, they separated. First division in the Christian church happens. This is known as the Great Schism. And what happened was that the Greeks in the eastern part of the empire were like, we have the proper teaching. We have the right teaching. Okay? So we have the right form of worship. So we are ortho, meaning right, dox, meaning worship or doctrine. So the eastern part of the church becomes the ortho Dox Church. This is Greek Orthodoxy. This is Eastern Orthodoxy, etc. The Western part of the church was like, well, we're still the church. I don't know what y'all are doing, but we're still the church. We are the church of God, the universal church of God, based in Rome. We are the Roman Catholic Church. Darn it. Outside of that, there's no salvation. Okay? So the man who laid the foundation for the Western Roman Catholic Church was Augustine of Hippo. Okay, now one of the greatest things about Augustine is that most of his writings, which were a lot, are still available today. The most popular of which, I think I have it there, is going to be the City of God, okay, followed by his confessions and I believe of Christian doctrine. Now, you can go to Barnes and Nobles right now on your way home. You can stop at Barnes and Noble and you can get any of these three books. At least the first two. Now it's pretty impressive that 1600 years later they're still publishing your work. Okay? <laughs> There's folks that their books have been out of print and they wrote them back in the 90s. Okay? So 1600 years later, this man is still being read in every language under heaven. So this is the most influential guy. So what did Augustine teach that made him a little different than other people? So here we get into the Augustinian view. Okay. Here's the thing. Augustine is a Roman. Augustine was born in Africa. His mom was a Christian. His father was a pagan. Okay. Now, he lived as a pagan up until the age of 31, where he gets converted, and he begins about two or three years later writing about Christian doctrine. He was very intelligent. He was, went to university. He went to college. And one of the things that Augustine did is that he wanted to answer the question, of how is it that God saves people, right? How does this whole thing work? God, we believe, foreknows all things, okay? God, we believe, knows all things, yet there is evil in the world. So how does, how does it make sense that God is good? He knows everything, and there's evil in the world. How does the whole notion of us being sinners get saved, etc.? So he wants to answer all these questions. He wants to deal with all of this stuff. And so Augustine, what sets him apart, is that Augustine began teaching something called original sin. Okay, So original sin, the doctrine of original sin, is Augustinian, meaning as he taught it, nobody taught it before him. The doctrine of original sin teaches that when Adam sinned, we all sin in Adam. So far, so good. Okay? When Adam sinned, the human race fell. 
so far so good. But what makes him different is that he taught that not only that humanity fell in Adam, but that we inherited the sin of Adam. So when we are born, a baby is born with the sin of Adam. Furthermore, not only is a baby born a sinner, but that God imputes unto every child the sin of Adam. So every child that is born is born condemned by God already and subject to judgment, right? So he called this original sin. So every child that is born is born a sinner. Furthermore, this child that is born a sinner has something called a sinful nature, okay? Now, I know you've heard all these terms all your life. Prior to Augustine, you don't see that language being used by any of the early church fathers, okay? Now, each child is born with a sinful nature, bent towards sin. He inherits the sin of Adam, literally, okay? And he is imputed the guilt of Adam, too, so every child that is born is condemned. And so human beings are bent towards sinning, and therefore they don't have the will to get out of this or to choose otherwise. Okay? That's Augustine teaching. So, the Augustinian view, how does people get saved and get out of this mess, right? So the way Augustine taught that you get out of this mess is by God's grace. Okay? God gives a sinner his grace, and then through his grace, this is thrown off, and the sinner can come to Christ. So far, this is great, right? Sounds awesome. Right. Now, there was a guy called Pelagius who heard some of this teaching, and he said, wait a minute, this sounds great, but the problem is if you're a guy in this situation and you cannot do otherwise, then how am I going to hold you accountable for your sin, right? You're born sinner. You're bent to sin. You cannot do otherwise. You, your will cannot choose otherwise than what you are. Therefore, how are we sending you to hell, right? So the argument began there. So Pelagius and Augustine go back and forth over this, over several writings. Eventually, through several councils and political moves, Pelagius is condemned as a heretic to this day. You hear the term Pelagianism means heresy. Okay, so you hear Pelagius. And what Augustine, because we don't have the writings of Pelagius, they were burnt and he was kicked out of the empire. That's how it happened back in the day. You lost the debate. Bye-bye. Okay. What we think, what Augustine says that Pelagius taught was that human beings were born in the same state as Adam. And what happened when Adam fell is that Adam fell and he sinned. But we're born in the same state as Adam. Okay, no sinful nature, we don't inherit any sin, but we have a free will to choose, and if you choose wrong, then you're condemned, and then you need salvation. So, the heresy lies in the fact that supposedly, we don't know, but Pelagius taught that nothing happened with Adam's sin, and that we just follow his example. So, his view was condemned to heresy. So, okay, now, this debate kind of went back and forth, Fast forward a couple of hundred years, and by hundred years, I mean like a thousand, we get to the Reformation. So what happens, the Catholic Church became corrupt in his teaching, etc., and a man by the name of Martin Luther, which is that guy over there, happy fella, was an Augustinian monk, emphasis on the word Augustinian, and he begins to see some problems with the church, okay? 
He nails his 95 theses. In other words, this is 95 ways in which I think the church is wrong. Okay? And he posted them up. The whole thing happens. Anyways, eventually, Luther ends up breaking up from the Roman Catholic Church. The whole Protestant Reformation happens. Justification by faith. The beautiful doctrine that we all love is rescued, etc. But Luther's view is Augustinian. He was an Augustinian monk. Okay? So... There's another guy around that time. That guy there is a guy by the name of Desiderius Erasmus. That's an awesome name. Erasmus was a Catholic monk. Now, at this point, both of these guys are pretty much Catholic, all right? And Erasmus agreed with Luther in all of his problems with the church. Yes, the church is corrupt. Yes, the church is bad. Yes, all these things are happening, all right? We need to reform the church, but we shouldn't break off off of it. And so he remained a Catholic for the rest of his life, whereas Luther broke off. Now, Erasmus noticed that Luther's view was troublesome. So he writes a book called A Free Will, which is a very long book. Luther responds a year later with another book called Bundish of the Will. Okay, so officially you have the first dis war between rappers, the 1500s. Okay, that's what happens. Uh, except that instead of a four-minute track, you have a thousand-page book <laughs> that happens. So, so he writes a book called Free Will. Luther writes a book called In the Bondage of the Will. Okay? And so the argument is the same. Luther holds to the Augustinian view of original sin, sinful nature, total depravity, no free will. Erasmus is defending the view, which some people call Pelagian, that yes, human beings are fallen, but they have a free will and they can choose to come to God, etc. Alright, so Luther dies, Erasmus dies, fast forward a couple of years later, we are in the Reformation, we have this guy here, his name is John Calvin, okay? John Calvin, again, Augustinian monk, holds to the same view, okay? Calvin dies, a couple of years later, this man shows up. His name is Arminius, Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius thinks that this view, it's okay, but coupled with some of the other views of Calvin's own election and predestination, he says that that makes God the author of sin. If this is true, that God predetermines everything and that we have a sinful nature, we're born bent to sin, then God is the author of sin. So he breaks from the Reformation. He is therefore, again, banished. Actually, he passed away before he could be banished. His followers who followed him were banished from Geneva. Okay, their writings were burned. We still have some of them, etc. And so, you know, this is all the way into the 1600s now. So we began in the 400s. We're up to the 1600s. These guys, I don't think I have it there, but these guys pass away. A couple of hundred years later, we got a guy by the name of John Wesley who breaks from his friend George Whitfield over the same issue. Okay, so you have 1600 years down to our day of arguing over these different doctrines. And it all boils down to the issue of whether or not a person prior to Christ has the ability or can or has the free will to make a genuine choice of either accepting or denying Christ. Okay? These folks over here say no. So, let me break this down even further, just in case 
you're not having enough fun yet, it's going to get even better. All right. How does this work? All right. All Christians, all believers, believe in something called free will. That human beings have the ability to choose. All of us here choose things, right? I chose that laptop over other laptops. You make choices every day, okay? We all believe that. The difference is that the Augustinian view, free will, the way that they define it, is the ability to choose what you want. Is the ability to choose what you desire. So here's your will, it's your will, okay? They believe that your will makes choices, but those choices obviously don't just happen, they're based on something, right? We choose something. So here you have, back of your will, you have this desire or motive, okay, right? You have desire and motive, which stems out of your nature. You have nature here, okay, right? So you choose whatever you want to choose based on what you want to choose, which is based on your nature, right? So, sounds great. You choose freely. You choose whatever you want freely. God is not coercing anybody to do anything, right? Everybody freely chooses what they want. It's just that what they want it stems out of their nature, which is sinful, right? So if you have a sinful nature, you're going to have selfish, sinful desires, which are going to dictate eventually what you're going to choose. So whatever you choose freely, you choose freely out of your desires, which according to the Augustinian view is based on a nature that you inherited when you were born, which is sinful, and therefore everything that you desire is sinful. And so when the gospel is presented to you and you're called to make a choice, your choice is automatically always going to be against it, because though you choose freely, you choose freely according to your sinful desires, which is based on your sinful nature. So God is not coercing anybody to sin. God gave them a nature, sets them loose, and they do what they want. So this is how they explain how a person can be held accountable to sin because they're freely choosing what they want. Makes perfect sense, right? Follows through. How did this person get saved, right? God to those he decides to save, goes in and through the Holy Spirit and the preaching of his words, changes their nature. This is called regeneration, okay? This is a biblical doctrine, regeneration, all right? This happens while the sinner is passive. So this is how this works. I'm a preacher, I come to preach, okay? Jaden here, let's say Jaden here has been chosen by God to be saved, and then Miguel here hasn't, for whatever reason. So God, as I'm preaching the gospel, both of these guys are listening. At this point, they're both in the same position, right? They both have a sinful nature, etc. But God, through the preaching of the word, goes inside of Jaden without Jaden knowing, and regenerates him. He changes his nature. As a result of that, then Jaden's desires change, and so do his choices. And when the gospel is proclaimed and a decision is put towards both of their minds, Jaden will say, yes, Christ, I want to be saved. So he exercises faith, which is a gift from God. So in Augustinian view, regeneration precedes faith. You are first born again by God, and then you have faith. 
Now, Jaden thinks that he made a choice. Jaden thinks he accepted Christ, and he put his faith in Jesus. What Jaden doesn't know yet until he goes to some Baptist Reformed church is that God actually chose Jaden and therefore did a work on him, you know, secretly, which resulted in Jaden having faith. Okay? That's the Augustinian view. Sounds great. Wonderful. Here's the problem. We all know that nobody, not everybody gets saved. Right? People go to hell all the time. Right? And not everybody responds to the gospel. Why is that? Part of the Augustinian view to make sense of that is that God, before the foundation of the world, had an elect people that he was going to save. So before any of us were born, God selected people from every nation under heaven to save, and in their appointed time, he saves them this way without even their response. He goes inside of them and he saves them. Okay, so that's how that works with the doctrine of election. So the Augustinian view makes election to be unconditional. You're not doing anything. You're just walking down the street and you love Jesus all of a sudden. Now it comes coupled with the preaching of the word, but in the Augustinian view, you don't do anything. In fact, people who are Augustinian in their thinking would tell you that if you do anything, even respond in faith, if one drop of you is in your salvation, and that's humanism. You're sovereign and God is not. Okay? That's the Augustinian view. Here's the problem. The people who hold to the other view will say, that sounds wonderful if you're elect. If you're not elect, your life is pretty bad. <laughs> because you will be passed over by God and you will be condemned technically before you were even born, technically before the world was even made, although typically... These guys will not use that language. This is the people who oppose this view. And therefore, also, the sinner would have an excuse. I'm not choosing to sin. It's my nature. I was born this way. In fact, before I was even born. In fact, before my Adam was made. In fact, before the foundation of the world. I was reprobated. I was not chosen to be saved. And therefore, the people who oppose this view would say, you have an excuse, and God would be the author of of sin. Okay? So that's the argument. Right. So, I think I have a couple of quotes here. Just to verify. Okay, that's the Augustinian view. Okay. You inherit Adam's sin. That's the Augustinian view. Uh, you inherit a sinful nature. You choose what you desire, which is obviously based on your sinful nature, which is based on the fact that you inherited Adam's sin. Your desires are determined by your nature. You choose what you desire, etc. Your nature is sinful, and so are your desires, and you will always freely make sinful choices until God comes in and does the work. So, if you go forward, this is the Osberg Confession. This is the Lutheran Confession. It says it this way. It is taught among us that since the fall of Adam, all human beings who are born in the natural way are conceived and born in sin. This means that from birth they are full of evil, lust, and inclination, and cannot by nature possess true fear of God and true faith in God. So that's a pretty good summary of what they teach. Uh, the formula of Concord says, in spiritual and divine matters, the mind, heart, and will of the unreborn human being can in absolutely no way, on the basis of his own natural powers, understand, believe, accept, consider, will, begin, accomplish, do, effect, or cooperate. Instead, it is completely dead to the good, completely corrupted. This means that in this human nature, after the fall and before rebirth, there is no spark of spiritual power left or present, 
with which human beings can prepare themselves for the grace of God or even accept the grace as it is offered. So you can preach to a person that God is not going to save until you turn blue and that's not going to do anything because they're corrupt in their nature. All right. This is how this works. The Westminster Confession says this, All those whom God has predestinated unto life and those only... He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone, giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. Okay? Now, I think that's all I got. You can leave it there. Okay, so that's pretty much the understanding. The Augustinian view, you're born with a sinful nature, you're bound by sin, and technically, even though they use the word free will, they don't have the ability to choose as we understand it unless God first acts upon them. The guys on the other side would say that gives the sinner an excuse and that makes God the author of sin. Because unless God regenerates you first, you're not going to believe, so it's outside of your responsibility, therefore, to believe. Now, I picked Charles Finney because he's the guy who sort of drilled into this probably better than anybody as far as the details of this teaching. So let's go back to see what the other view says. Okay? Now you're all, I'm giving you two extremes. Everybody else sort of even going to navigate somewhere towards the middle somehow. But this is basically the two main views. Okay? Here's your will. All right, again, your will is a stick for whatever reason. All right, here's your will, okay? You have desires, which are here, and you have your nature, or whatnot. And then you have your choices that you make, All right? Here's the first mistake that Charles Finney, for example, sees in the Augustinian view. The Augustinian view does not distinguish between physical things and, how much time I got? I got 10 minutes. Physical things and moral things. So he begins by saying this. Physical government is control exercised by law of necessity or force as distinguished from the law of free will or liberty. It is the control of substance as opposed to free will. Feeney says your nature, okay, and everybody in this school falls within the realm of physics. I touch you, you feel. If you're a black couple, it's a pretty good chance you're going to have a black baby. If you're blonde, your kids are going to have blonde hair. Any state that is physical falls within the realm of necessity. It's governed by the law of force. There is no choice. Nobody's going to be held accountable for not keeping the law of gravity. The law of gravity happens. It's a physical thing. Finney says that nature is physical, therefore can be inherited, but sin does not fall within this realm. Sin falls within the moral realm. 
So moral government consists in the declaration and administration of moral law. It is the government of free will by motives as distinguished from the government of substance by force. Physical government presides over and controls physical states and changes of substance or constitution. Moral government presides and controls or seeks to control the actions of free will. It presides over intelligent and voluntary states and changes of mind. So your will and your choices are moral. The difference between these two is that here there's choice. There's no choice in that which is physical. So Finney would deny that people inherit a sinful nature because that is an oxymoron. That would be like drinking dry water because sin is a violation of God's law which has to do with choices and character and voluntary actions. Nature has to do with force, cause and effect. I touch you, you feel. You jump, you come down. Your black parents have black babies, etc. Those things can be inherited, can be passed along, can be carried forward by cause and effect, but not choices. And so, in the Augustinian view, the choice that you make is the effect. The cause is your nature. You choose sinfully because your nature is sinful. So they made the will a, an effect of a cause. Finney says the will is the cause. This is the executive power of the mind. You make choices because you're a moral agent. Now you take things into consideration, but ultimately your will determines your choices and your choices will determine who you are. So no, you did not inherit a sinful nature. And when you get saved, the work of the Spirit is to convince you to make the proper choice by presenting arguments to your mind. So when we preach the gospel and we try to convince sinners of their sin, we're trying to impress upon their minds information so they can make the proper decision. The guys who are on the other side would say then you're saying that man can save himself because all you have to do is choose right all your life and then you'll go straight on to heaven. The guys on this side would say no because we live in a sinful world. <laughs> we are subject to temptation. We don't have a relationship with Christ. We don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling with us. And so therefore we're subject to temptations. Now, here's where it gets tricky. A choice may be moral at the beginning, and then it's taken over by nature through things like addictions and appetites. So a baby, if the mother is uh, a crack addict, the baby is born a crack baby, they call it. Now the baby, though his nature, right, he was born that way, that he cannot be held accountable for that because it's not up until he makes the choice that there's accountability because there's a distinguishing between these two things in this view. And so therefore, if a person makes a choice to start doing crack, at the point he starts making the choice, yes, is on them, but when the addiction takes over, now you have cause and effect. Now you're bound by that addiction. Now the sinner, though he may will differently, cannot escape that because then his addiction, his body, his physicality keeps him bound. 
So the gospel comes in to provide what the nature cannot. So a person can still, though a person cannot escape an addiction and sin, they can say, God, I cannot escape my addiction and sin. Can you help me? And the Spirit of God provides this. But ultimately, in this view, the sinner has to make a choice. And the other view, God makes the choice for the sinner. So those are the two different understandings of free will. I got five minutes. Okay, I'm going to end it. So those are basically the two main views. So when we go through these verses in the Bible, as we're going to go through these verses, keep in mind that you're dealing with these two perspectives predominantly. Now, there are some in between that happens, but predominantly, these are the two perspectives that you're going to be dealing with, okay? Now, you're going to fall within one of those two categories, or you're going to say, this is a mystery, we can't figure it out, we'll wait until we go to heaven, okay? So, finally, the Augustinian view, election has nothing to do with your faith or what you do, it's what God decides. In this view, your election is always going to be in tandem with your faith. That's the difference. However it happens or however it works out, eventually those who are chosen in this view are chosen in tandem with the faith that they exercise. And here, it has nothing to do with what you did or what you, whatever. God picked people for whatever reasons. All right? So, those are the two views. I am late but I condensed it the best that I can, okay? Anybody has any questions? Everybody good? Everybody understands everything? Everybody can go home and explain it to friends and family. Remember everything that I say. Do the whole thing on the board. Everybody good? Okay. Is the PowerPoint available online? The PowerPoint is not available online. Uh, it can be uh, for a small fee. I will, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, anyways, so. Let's pray, because we're late. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that there were men before us that were brave enough, Lord, to try to deal with the difficult issues of the Bible, that debated it, Lord, and left all that information available to us to this day, Lord. I pray that you may give us understanding, and that you may help us, Lord, deal with the difficult parts of the Bible, Lord, and that you may Assure us, Lord, that even though we may not, under not understand completely, your word is still precious, your word is good, your word is perfect, your word is always right, Lord, even when we don't understand. And we thank you for preserving it down to this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.